0: Thank oh. you. Welcome back to The Dark Side. I'm your host, Sherry. Today's case focuses on the Martin family. This family disappeared after venturing out to look for greenery to make Christmas decorations. I was not alive in the 50s, but I imagine Christmas time was a magical time for kids, just as it is today. I've been thinking a lot about Christmas recently, maybe because it's July and I'm hot and ready for fall and winter. The Martins left behind a few clues, and we're gonna deep dive into their mysterious disappearance today. As always, my sources are in the description area. This is episode 82, The Disappearance of the Martin Family. This story takes us back all the way to 1958. This is the year NASA was established. The US launched its first satellite, Explorer One, The first Barbie doll was introduced. Madonna and Michael Jackson were born. President Eisenhower signed a bill that allowed Alaska to become the 49th state and it was dubbed the largest state. For the first time in history, more passengers crossed the Atlantic in airplanes than in ships. Morgantown, Pennsylvania got 50 inches of snow. Pizza Hut and Trader Joe's were founded. The average house was ready for this, $10,450. The tuition to Harvard was $1,250 per year. And lastly, in 1958, Elvis joined the army. The Martin family live in Portland, Oregon. The dad in this family's name is Ken, and he is 54 years old. He works as a service manager for an electric company. Mom is Barbara, and she is 48. Barbara is a writer, but not a novelist from what I can find. Basically, she participated in these contests and sweepstakes in the newspaper where you have to come up with a jingle or a catchphrase for a product, and she won a lot of times. So she earned money that way and once even won a new car. They have an older son named Donald, who is 28 years old and stationed in the Navy in New York. And they have three daughters, 14-year-old Barbie, 13-year-old Virginia and 11-year-old Susan. They loved reading and could often be found hanging out at the local library. The three girls are still in school and the older son Donald again lives in New York as he is in the Navy. I checked out the Martin's family home and it is still standing today. It is in this cute little neighborhood and is occupied today by a family. The house was built in 1932. The odd thing to me is that the next-door neighbor's house, which is 1723 Northeast 56th Avenue, is completely blurred out on Google Maps. I can't find any info about why. Usually, Google will blur out a house if a major crime has taken place there. Try to look up Chris and Shanann Watt's house and you'll see the same thing. Anyway... People, including you and I, have the option to request that their house be blurred out on Google Maps for privacy reasons, and that's likely what happened since I can't find anything major about it. But I just thought it was strange. Ken and Barbara were seemingly loving parents. This family loves Christmas. They live in a two-story, two-door-style home that is adorned with Christmas items. Some people have this obsession with holidays, like my husband and daughter love Christmas and my son and I love Halloween. But the dad in this family, Ken, he loves Christmas, so much so that the family makes homemade Christmas decorations and passes them out to neighbors. Their house was nicknamed Candy Lane by the neighborhood kids. Ken has this Santa Claus suit that he dresses in for all the neighborhood kids. This is exactly what he was doing the night of December 6, 1958. They attended a local Christmas party and handed out homemade candy cane decorations to the neighbors. The next day is Sunday, December 7th. Ken leaves his Santa suit laying out in the living room from the night before. Maybe he has another upcoming party and another group of kids to play Santa to soon. Barbara is doing laundry. The family is gonna leave for a bit. They're gonna drive out to the Columbia River Gorge to find greenery to make Christmas decorations. According to the National Forest Service, the Columbia River Gorge is a spectacular river cannon 80 miles long and up to 4,000 feet deep that meanders past cliffs, spires and ridges set against nearby peaks of the PNW's Cascade Mountain Range. It's 4,000 foot tall at some spots. The gorge holds federally protected status and is managed by the U.S. Forest Service. So Ken and Barbara and their daughters, 14-year-old Barbie, 13-year-old Virginia, and 11-year-old Susan pile into the family's Ford Country Squire station wagon and head out. I've never seen a car so big. This station wagon is supposed to be a nine-person vehicle, so it was plenty of room for this family to ride in. This was a great day they picked for this drive since it was the warmest day they had had in a while. The temperatures were in the mid-50s and there was no threat of rain, so they are off on their day trip with every intention of returning later that night. There were dirty dishes in the sink, Ken's Santa Claus costume is laying out, there are even wet clothes in the washing machine. They took oranges and walnuts as a snack for this road trip. The next morning is Monday and time to go back to work and school. Ken's supervisor at the electric company is puzzled that Ken hasn't shown up for work. In fact, he was shocked when he pulled in and saw Ken's service truck wasn't sitting there in the parking lot. This is completely out of character. If he was going to be out due to illness or, ha- or car problems or any other reason, he would miss work. He surely would have phoned in and told the secretary there who would pass the message along to him. But Ken didn't call, and Ken was not known to miss days anyway. All three girls' teachers marked them absent. They say these girls never miss school, and certainly not all three at once. If they did miss school for vacation, Barbara always sent a letter in saying that they would be out. So missing person reports were filed for the family. By 11 p.m. the night of December 8th, the police arrive at the Martin home. They had left the afternoon before, so it's been over 24 hours since anyone has seen them. Police don't see anything out of the ordinary at their house, no signs of a break-in. There's laundry and dishes, and it looks like any other typical home inside. The only thing missing is their car, a 1954 Ford Squire station wagon. Their bank account is checked into, and they have plenty of money in there, so it's not like they cleaned out their bank account and went on the run. The next few days, their pictures are in the newspaper, and there's missing person flyers around town. The next-door neighbors recalled them leaving the afternoon before and said nothing seemed out of the ordinary. How do we even know that they left to go look for Christmas greens? Well, their neighbor had stopped them outside and asked if they wanted to stop over for dinner that evening. One of the other families on the street was hosting dinner. They declined and explained their plans to go up the highway and look for Christmas greens. So the neighbor asked again, are you sure you don't want to stop by for dinner? Ken says, no, we better just stick to the plan. She says, what's the plan? To which Ken replies, to go up the highway. An investigation is opened and it's hard in 2023 to get all the facts straight since it's been 65 years since this happened. And people who were involved in the case are now in their 90s or deceased. For example, lead detective Walter Graven died in 1988. He left a lot of notes, though, and we have tons of newspaper articles about the Martins. No one really knew where they were going to look for Christmas greens. All Ken said was we're going up the highway. It wouldn't be until two weeks after they disappear. A clue pops up that gives us an idea of their whereabouts that day. A receipt gets mailed to their house for a purchase of gasoline the day of the disappearance using a credit card. I read it was a receipt, but I'm thinking it was actually a credit card statement. I don't know if gas stations back then would mail receipts to your house, but it would seem like a weird thing to do. The gas station owner, Dean Baxter, had sold gas to the Martins at about 4 p.m. the same day at his store in Cascade Locks, and this store was located about 40 miles east of the Martins' home, and the credit card statement confirms that the gas was purchased. Now, we've got two different police agencies investigating this case. One is the Hood River County Police. The other is the Multnomah County Police. Near Cascade Locks, a white Chevrolet was found abandoned. Now, this car piques the interest of police. Not because they believe it was the Martin's car, because it wasn't. The Martin's car was a Ford, so we know it's not theirs. However, the car was a stolen car from Los Angeles. Near it was a thirty eight caliber Colt Commander handgun. The gun was covered in dried blood. A citizen found the gun and turned it into police. However, it wasn't processed for fingerprints or a test ran to see what type of blood it was. Back then, they didn't have DNA testing, but you could see what type of blood to help narrow down who it belongs to. And if you remember, I talked about that in the Joan Riesch case, which her case took place in 1961. Photos of the gun were taken, and it was logged into their notes. I'm going to come back to this gun in a little bit, but I was surprised to learn that the police actually told the man who found it that he could keep the gun. He found it. It's yours. So the man takes it home and cleans it, wiping away all that blood and fingerprints that could get a conviction. Can you imagine if that happened in an investigation today? I'm going to come back to the gun, but for now, we've got other stuff to talk about. There was also a woman's glove found near the car, which they thought could belong to Barbara, but there was no way to say that it was definitely hers. We learn that a few days after the Martins disappeared, there was an arrest of two fugitives whose names were Richard Allen Hunt and Lester Price. They were charged with car theft in connection with that white abandoned Chevy. I've heard they were hiding in the gorge area for a few days, and I also heard that they spent three days at a brothel, so I don't know which one of those is correct. Maybe there's a brothel at the gorge. I have no idea. A waitress at a diner in the area said she had seen the martin family that afternoon after they stopped for gas she knows it was them she remembered serving them burgers and fries the same time the martins were at this place eating their food two men sat at a different booth the two men were richard allen hunt and lester price they left around the same time that the martins did i'm not saying these men are guilty i'm just saying they were fugitives who stole a car They were at the same diner at the same time the Martins were, and left around the same time. There was also a gun found in the bushes near their car with dried blood on it. A few months after their disappearance, we are in 1959 now, there have been tons of searches on foot and by helicopter, One searcher finds a set of tire tracks leading off of a cliff in the area. Remember, they're in a gorge area and it wouldn't take much to drive your car off and into the Columbia River. Near these tire tracks, they found a rock with paint on it. The FBI examined the paint and it was a match to the Martin's car. Basically, the evidence is showing that they drove their car off the cliff. We've got their tire tracks and there's paint that came from their car and onto the rock before it went off. This doesn't necessarily mean they were in it. Someone could have put the car in neutral and pushed it off while it was empty, we don't know. The Army Corps was able to use the dam to adjust the water levels in the river to see if the car was in there. They also used sonar equipment, but they didn't find anything. On May 1st, 1959, this is five months after they disappeared. There was a drill rig that was lowered into the water Well, it became stuck on something large. It was released before it could be pulled up. All we know is that it was metal. It was believed that this was their car, but spoiler alert here, the car was not recovered and has never been recovered in the last 65 years. But there was indeed a drill rig in the water that hit something and it became dislodged. The next day, a fisherman and his wife were enjoying their afternoon in the area and saw two bodies floating downstream in the river near Cascade Locks. They notify police as these bodies are moving rapidly down the river. One body was pulled out and the other was found the next day. They were the bodies of the two youngest daughters, 13-year-old Virginia and 11-year-old Susan. They were identified through their dental records It's believed that the large drill had hit the car, which caused it to overturn, and during this, the doors were opened and the two girls' bodies were released into the water. They had to call off all water searches because one of the searchers almost died, and they felt it was too dangerous to keep going back in. Both girls were taken in for autopsies. The autopsy showed that they had eaten burgers and fries within two hours of their death. A technician who took their fingerprints noted that they each had a hole in their head. This wasn't listed on the medical examiner's report though. This bothers me because if the medical examiner is thorough enough to note that they had burgers and fries, vegetation matter in their stomachs, shouldn't he have noticed there was a hole in each of their heads? It makes me wonder if the technician saw what he thought was a hole in each of their heads and the medical examiner saw the same thing, but knew it was from aquatic life or something like that. The water will do crazy things to your body. It will distort it. It will eat away at you. They can't say for sure if it's a bullet hole. The girl's official cause of death was listed as drowning, according to the medical examiner's report. And afterwards, both girls were cremated. The police have a theory that Ken drove the car off the edge of the cliff with his whole family inside, whether it was an accident or on purpose, or they were forced off the cliff by some sort of foul play, like an abduction at gunpoint. According to crimewire.com, the location of the tracks suggested that an accident was unlikely as the spot was not close to the road. The family left the diner at 4.30 p.m., Remember, this is winter, so it's getting dark at 5 p.m. or so. Ken was known to not like driving in the dark, so they would have been on their way back. Instead, they went in the opposite direction to where their car likely went off the cliff. I'm, I know I'm using the word likely a lot, and I apologize, but we don't have their car, so I can't say for sure if it went off the cliff. Even though we have tire tracks and car paint scrapes on rocks, I have to use words like likely or allegedly when there's situations like this. Just to recap a little bit, we've got the bodies of the two younger daughters. We're still missing mom, dad, and the older daughter, Barbie, and we still don't know what happened. We know they stopped for gas. We know they went to eat. We know they sat near two dudes who were on the run. Their abandoned stolen car was found along with a bloody gun nearby. We don't know if these two were involved or if they just happened to be in the area. Plus, we've got tire tracks leading off the edge of the cliff and paint from their car that had transferred onto rocks. The chief investigating officer on this case is Detective Walter Graven. He took this case to his death, but we have his notes from the case. Even his grandson was interviewed a few years ago by a news team. He said how much this case meant to his granddad, and he had his notebook, which his granddad had given to another officer. He quoted his granddad as saying, This case will be solved if I live long enough for the car and bodies to be found. Detective Graven has one person he's really interested in speaking with, someone who's been flying under the radar this whole time. That is Ken and Barbara's oldest son, Donald. Remember him from the beginning? Donald is 28 and in New York with the Navy, which is all the way across the country from where they're at in Oregon. What's Donald been up to lately is what is on Detective Graven's mind. He's wondering why Donald didn't come to the memorial service for his sisters. Donald said he had the dates mixed up. He is also wondering why Donald isn't here helping look for the family. He says his aunt told him not to worry about flying all the way out here. We're handling it. Just do whatever you got to do. Stay in New York. We'll update you with anything we find. But his aunt says she never said that. Donald didn't come to Oregon while all of this is going on, except when it was time to collect his inheritance eight years later. As the only surviving member of this family... He's the sole beneficiary, but obviously he was in no hurry to get the money or it was tied up in legal stuff. The life insurance and estate he collected was $37,000. I know that doesn't sound like a lot of money when it comes to life insurance, but back then this was equivalent to $400,000 in 2023. He did show up one other time in June 1959 to meet with Detective Graven, and he claimed there were some financial papers and income tax stuff missing from his father's desk. Donald told Detective Graven, I know of no one who would murder my folks or no reason for it, but I don't see how it could have been an accident. Detective Graven learned some things about Donald that he made sure to jot down in his notebook. First, Donald had been fired from his job at a sporting goods store a few years ago. The reason for his termination was he was caught stealing. He stole a ton of stuff, around $2,000 worth, or $21,000 in 2023. One of the items was a thirty-eight caliber Colt Commander handgun, just like the one that was found near that abandoned car the two guys had stolen. But remember, the other police agency hadn't processed it for fingerprints. Instead, they just gave it back to the guy who found it. Well, they at least wrote down the serial number for the gun, and it was a match to the gun that Donald had stolen. Donald was in New York during the time of the disappearance. He's got rock-solid alibis. So why was this gun there? We don't have an answer for that. In fact, Donald says he hates guns. According to Detective Graven's report, Donald had confessed to stealing from the sporting goods store four years earlier. He had told his boss he was going through a rough time at home. He says his mom was a fat slob and his dad wasn't much better. He also says that his sisters may grow up to be just like them. So, what was causing all this tension between Donald and his parents? It was the discovery that Donald was gay. It's the 50s, and you know this isn't going to go over well. Now, Donald didn't come out to his parents. His parents actually walked in on him with another man. They were so upset that they sent him away to a Christian college in Connecticut, but he decided to join the Navy instead. Now, we have nothing formally tying Donald to murdering his parents and sisters, even though a gun he had once stolen was located nearby. Without his fingerprints or proof he hired hitmen, there's nothing to go on. Like, this would never hold up in court. In fact, Ken may have found the gun in his house and put it in his glove box. If they are approached and felt in danger, he may have taken it out. Perhaps it was wrestled away from him and beat with it, and, you know, that would explain the blood on the gun. Detective Graven had written in his notebook, It had to be planned out by, and then a name is scratched out. His notes continued to read, no one else with a motive. A lot of folks over the years wondered whose name he had scratched out. Through advancements in technology, it was found the name was Donald. Maybe he believed Donald killed his family, but then changed his mind, which is why he eventually scratched it out. Eventually, he did eliminate Donald as a suspect, at least formally. Detective Graven's bosses told him he needed to leave the case alone. It was taking over his life his bosses forbid him from having more divers go into the water the sheriff even burned his report right in front of him the sheriff says the family accidentally drove off the cliff and that was that end of discussion detective graven wrote in his personal notebook even though i can get no cooperation from anyone there is no murder that can't be solved One of the Martins' neighbors came forward and said there was a black taxi that sat at the Martins' house for an hour the day after the disappearance. The neighbor didn't think much of it because they weren't reported missing until later on that night. That's pretty much all the info we have, but a lot think this could have had something to do with Donald. Because it's a taxi, taxis usually come from airports. If it was a local person, they would have just driven their car. I've thought about this, and I have no idea why a taxi would have been there. I thought maybe it could have been one of the girl's teachers or one of Ken's co-workers checking on them. The person who hired the taxi wasn't seen outside looking in the windows, so it had to be someone who had a key. This taxi sighting didn't come out until six months later, which is odd. There is a possibility it could have been Donald and perhaps he came from the airport, but we'll never know. I want to go back to the gun that was found near the abandoned car, the one that matched the serial number from the gun at the sporting goods store that Donald had stole from four years earlier. Donald told Detective Graven, quote, New York police told me about a gun being found. I have no knowledge of it. Wayne had a buddy who worked in sporting goods. Wayne liked guns. I didn't. Okay, first off, this is huge. Who is Wayne, and why is Donald name-dropping the guy like that? Wayne, whose last name wasn't released, was all over Detective Graven's notes. According to CrimeWire.com, he and Donald met in 1953, while Wayne was a student at Portland State University, and Donald was still working at the sporting goods store. The two quickly became friends and then roommates. It goes on to say that in 2008... Wayne gave an interview in which he initially claimed that Donald's parents had no idea he was gay, but then he contradicted that by saying, quote, Donald had set up a situation with another gay person at home after Ken and Barbara were gone, and the parents came back and caught Donald in the act, so to speak. I think he wanted to expose. He wanted to open up the story of his life, and he didn't know how to do it. It was never revealed who the man was that Donald was with when his parents walked in. Wayne says he knew the family well and stayed close to them even after Donald joined the Navy. They asked him why he never told them their son was gay and he said it wasn't his place to do that. So Wayne is a physical education teacher at a high school. He was also friends with two particular guys. Richard Allen Hunt and Lester Price. Remember the two guys with that stolen car? As well, he had another friend who was known to be connected to organized crime and then became none other than a taxi driver. This story has so many things that could be evidence or just coincidental. If this would have happened in today's world, it would have been a whole lot easier to solve. For example, the cops wouldn't have given the gun away. The taxi would have been picked up on someone's ring camera and, and things like that. One of Detective Graven's theories is that the oldest daughter, Barbie, who is 14, had become pregnant. Just a couple months earlier, she had attended a doctor's appointment, but it wasn't her normal doctor. Her parents drove her to Vancouver, Washington. Teenage pregnancy was something that people would definitely try to hide back in the 50s. One reason for this theory is that the waitress at the diner said that Barbie wanted to order a burger and fries like her parents and sister's but her mother wouldn't let her. Instead, she made her order a tuna sandwich. Detective Graven theorized that Barbie had become pregnant by an older man, one who was married. Her parents found out and maybe they wanted to meet with this person to confront him or maybe ask for help with money for an illegal abortion, but they told the neighbors they were going to look for Christmas greens. They can't exactly explain that they would be doing this other thing instead. So this man that is theorized to have met with the family, decided to get rid of this family instead of risking his wife finding out. Again, this is just a theory. I know I've said it like five times. We don't know if Barbie was pregnant or not, but Detective Graven thought it was important enough to tell others about. It seems like a stretch, but he would have had reason to believe this could have been true. Maybe this is what Ken meant when he told the neighbor lady they wouldn't be coming over for dinner. They had to, air quotes, stick to their plan which was driving out to meet the father of her baby. Again, just a theory. We have no public evidence to support this. If your head isn't spinning enough already, it certainly will when I tell you another strange thing about this case. In 1969, this is 11 years after the disappearance of the Martin family, Detective Graven received a Christmas card in the mail. It was from Donald Martin. It was a card and it had magazine cut out letters so it looked kind of like a ransom note it gives me goosebumps because it was all written in french but the english translation was quote and they came down from the hills and they were no longer afraid he also drew a sketch donald was a good artist so it was a detailed drawing of a young man surrounded by three children one of the children was holding a lamb There was also two sheep and a cliff in the background one of the children he drew which was the one holding the lamb appeared to be susan martin the youngest daughter i don't know what the symbolism is from this christmas card i think he was trying to convey that his sisters were at peace now but it was just a really strange thing to do at least to me it is donald moved to hawaii with his wife and was a school teacher for many years He had three children, and his family said he rarely would speak of his parents or sister or their disappearance. Donald died in 2004 at the age of 73. In fact, his obituary didn't even mention that he was preceded in death by his parents and sisters. I guess he just closed that chapter a long time before. Detective Walter Graven died in 1988, never knowing what happened to the Martin family, His grandson is the chief of police in a different county and says he hopes to someday solve this case himself. But anyone responsible for their deaths is likely dead at this point 65 years later and wouldn't be able to face justice, but it would provide answers. As I was researching this case, a thought kept going through my mind and I didn't realize that it had already happened until the very end. I don't know if you are familiar with Adventures with Purpose. They're a great team of professional divers who go into water with super sophisticated equipment and they locate cars and they've pulled out bodies and cars and some have even been in the water for decades. They're not affiliated with law enforcement. So once a car is located, they pull it out and then they call the police. Anyway, their channel is on YouTube and they've got around 3 million subscribers. I kept thinking I should write them and ask them to look for the Martin's car. And then I discovered that they had already attempted to do that. They did a two-part video on their hunt for the Martin's car. They are the best of the best, and even they couldn't find it. But they have solved around 30 missing persons cases. They did say they weren't giving up and would be back to search again in the future. Rest in peace to everyone involved in this case. It's been so many years, and we're still out here keeping you guys in our thoughts. That's it for this week, and I'll see you all again soon. Take care, and much love to you all.